You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. when Jacob uh, took advantage of his brother and his father, and we talked about do the ends justify the means, and this idea of does my desires and does my opinion justify my actions? Is there ever a situation where unrighteousness can be justified for the greater good? Um, And in, in this case, in all cases, no. The greater good does not justify unrighteous behavior in us. And so as we go through these, um, often I'm wanting to consider, and I hope you're considering as well, how do these help us define who we are? Who we are as a people, who we are as Christians, those that follow Christ. And so if I were to put a, a statement to each one of these, we are people who honor God even when it's hard. We are people who honor each other even when it's hard. We are a people who value walking with the Lord each and every day. We are a people that um, glorify the Lord for that great privilege in our lives. And we are a people that choose righteousness, doing what is right, over our own personal desires. This is a part of who we are as Christians. And so we often say that we find our identity in Christ. It's a very Christianese statement to make, but what does that really mean? How do I apply that? How do I work that out? And how do I actually own that? Because we can say, yes, I do find my identity in Christ. I accept him as my Lord and Savior. And it says, this is all the things that Christ says you need to do. I don't know if that is me. And oftentimes we go through life and we continue to make old decisions over and over and over again. We wonder why. Because no, I, I acknowledge the Lord. I find my identity in Christ. Why do I keep doing this thing? Paul talked about this to us. He says, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I end up doing. How do we truly find our identity in Christ? And so one of the really important things within that is it's a slow walk. It's a journey of us becoming more and more in the likeness of Christ. We're going to be making progress. It's going to be hard. It's never advertised to us as anything other than that. But a big thing that helps it go faster is community. You can, it could just be you and Jesus, and that is enough, but that's going to be a slow journey. God has always called us to be in community. It's actually for really good reason, because when we are actually vulnerable, and we know when other people are for us and love us, and we find joy in the place who we are, we start encouraging and spurring each other on. As we go through life and we think about the things we do and we think about, I'm going to be meeting with my buddies this next week and we're going to be talking about how the week went and I don't want to have to tell them that I screwed up. And so there's a little bit of that, like, this isn't, this isn't who I am. This isn't who we are. This isn't my people. We are Christ followers. We don't behave this way. 
And so we have to get into that place where we're actually within a smaller group of people that really love and care for us deeply. There's, it's a wonderful thing being part of the community at large here on a Sunday morning, but it's really hard to be close and accountable with 100 people. It's, it's very, it can be very surface level. It's encouraging. It's great to come here. But to, in order to grow, in order to really grow in our lives, we have to be close with a few. Jesus modeled this to us. He had the 500. He had the 12, but he also had the three. A few people that he really poured into to see immense growth in their lives. And that's what we need. If we want to see immense growth in our lives, we're going to have to have a few people that we can be really dreadfully honest with, who can encourage us, who can spur each other on, where we know we're still going to be accepted when we share the hard things. We've actually been seeing this recently. There's several groups that have started meeting together doing this very same thing. And there's immense victory in these people's lives. Things that have been plaguing them for 10, 20, 30 years. And finally, they're having victory. And what changed? They were vulnerable. They were willing to say, I struggle for this. Would you be with me through this? And suddenly, they have victory. It's amazing. It's incredible. And it's God's way. And it should be, we shouldn't just actually think about it as God's way. We should think about it. This is my way. My identity is indeed from Christ. I learn from the things he says and I apply them to my lives. This is who I am. This is who we are. We learn from the things that God has told us. And I hope that's what we do today um, as we go through this. I hope we learn from the things God's told us from Scripture because we're going to learn today about people who made bad choices, who didn't walk it God's way, and there are consequences to that. The title of this is What Goes Around Comes Around. And I was thinking this morning, I really should have titled it, is You Reap What You Sow. That is the emphasis of this week. You will reap what you sow. Jacob's going to reap what he has sown. And he's going to learn. And I hope we learn without having to walk it out. That is the best form of wisdom, is to be able to learn from someone else's mistakes and not make them ourselves. Out of Proverbs 12, 20 through 22, this is kind of the highlight over what we're going to talk about today. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have joy. No ill befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. I love the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is just blunt and honest saying, hey, if you do bad things, bad things happen. If you do good things, good things happen. It's very ideal. It's very upfront. It's not mincing any words. It's not trying to lead you somewhere. It's saying, this is what it is. And it's good for us. What's hard is it's very optimistic as well. And it's very just cut and dry, black and white. But we know life isn't always that way, which is why this isn't the only book of wisdom in the Bible. There are three books of wisdom that I encourage you to read I would read through each of those books at least once a year. It's Job, Ecclesiastes, and Proverbs. These are the three books of wisdom, and they, sh- they f- make a full picture to us of what this life on earth is, and the ups and the downs, and the most ideal ways we should walk this way. But trouble will come. We're warned of this. Peter talks to us about this. Don't be surprised when the difficult things happen. But if it's because of your bad choices, don't blame somebody else. That if 
our interactions with one another, if we follow what God says, we're going to have good relationships. We're going to have healthy relationships. We're not going to have the struggle and the drama and the strife that normally people go through in life when they're just trying to walk through it in their own selfish ways. We're still going to have people come up against us simply because they don't like the light you're shining. And that's fine. That's, that's actually good because you're reflecting God's light to the world and they're responding. We should be encouraged when people come up against us for that reason. But if they come up against us because we're being selfish people, then we need to learn and change. And so that's what we're going to look at today. Genesis 29. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it's still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep. Go pasture them. And they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. A couple of key things to note here. It mentioned how big this stone is. It mentioned several times it's going to take a collection of people to get it off the well. This isn't something they did in isolation. They, they, there's a lot of community focus going on here and that they're working together within this. And so there's a little bit of either it was just too big for any but all of them to roll off, or they simply waited to make sure that everybody was cared for and nobody was left out. Because imagine three of the flocks come, they roll off the stone, they roll it back, and the one guy was late, and what is he to do? So it's become their habit to wait for each other. We do this together in community. Um, another interesting thing to note within that is Jacob's going to roll it off by himself. It should be a quick note in our mind. That should be physically impossible to do. So Jacob is, for one, remarkably strong. It should change a view of the figure we have of Jacob. We had a couple of weeks an example of what kind of a depiction of what he might look like. He was kind of that spindly little guy compared to his giant brother Esau. And what's interesting there is there, this is not Jacob. Jacob is actually a strong individual, and the Lord is with him. It should give us the picture of divine assistance here. But also brashness and brazenness, because what has he done? He said, why aren't you doing this? And say, this is our tradition. We wait for each other. Well, the moment he felt it was good for him, he just blows right on through that. Nope, I'll do it myself. I'm going to take care of this. I need to make a good impression on my future in-laws here. And that's all that mattered to him. I'm doing things my own way has worked well so far, aside from the fact that I'm now four to 500 miles away from home, and I have no money, and I've barely made it here. But you know, other than that, it's been pretty good just making my own choices. What could possibly go wrong with this one? So this is what he's coming into. I'm just going to do it my way. And this is what we're beginning with. We should see an actual a parallelism going on here between his mother betrothal and his own betrothal happening here. 
So a couple chapters back, Abraham sends his servant up to this very same place to find a wife for Isaac. Isaac is Jacob's father, if you haven't been with us. And so the difference here is Jacob is the one watering the flocks, not the spouse-to-be. In the previous account, it was Rebekah who ended up watering the flocks. It was whoever was needing to do the impressing, to be quite honest, because when Abraham's servant rolls up, he's got a retinue with him. He's got camels. It would be like rolling up in a whole fleet of BMWs, coming out in suits and Rolexes, and it's, these guys got money, and I need their favor, is the attitude going on from the family. So Rebecca does a very impressive thing. She waters all the camels. Camels can drink about 30 gallons of water at a time. There's 10 of them. So she went and gathered three, at least 300 gallons of water from this well to water them. It's an impressive feat. It's, it's meant to feel like an impressive feat. Jacob does the same thing. He rolls this giant rock by himself off. He waters the whole flock by himself. It's meant to impress. And it also ties in our mind, there's probably wedding bells going on here. But what's the difference? Jacob doesn't have a whole lot to offer right now. He's banished. He's penniless. He needs to occur some favor. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that, was Rebecca's, and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Interesting thing to note here. Men do not run in the Near East. It's not a thing. But he ran to meet his nephew. Well, the last time somebody came from Abraham's household, he came with a bunch of money and a bunch of gifts, and they needed to impress him. So now he rolls up. He's super excited. Laban's got a bit of a thing for money. Super excited that he's here, and he rolls up, and now he's met his penniless nephew. I wonder how this might go. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall be your wages? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. So first of all, we at the very beginning of this passage, we have these tears of joy. He's made it on this long journey by himself with nothing but the Lord at his side, and he's made it safely. It's a wonderful thing. He immediately found his kinsman. It's a wonderful thing. And a future potential wife that is B-E-A-U-tiful. And he is happy. He's happy about what's going on here. Now, interesting sort of thing is the comparison between her sister Leah and Rachel herself is that Leah's eyes are described as weak in the translation here, and Rachel is beautiful. And it's thinking, you're just kicking Leah while she's down? It's just, what is going on here? That doesn't seem to match up here, even as a comparison. Uh, usually when we find comparisons in Scripture, they're comparing the same things. So why compare the eyes and just say, but, you know, she was gorgeous? So to look at that word weak, it's not used very many times in Scripture. It's just a handful. And so this word can also be translated as tender, gentle, or mild. 
And so when I, looking at this, it makes more sense contextually to look at this as she had gentle eyes. This was her most striking feature. It was the nicest feature she had. It's really what she had going for her. But by comparison, she couldn't hold a candle to her sister, saying, well, at least, at least she had pretty eyes. But her sister just captured all of his attention, is what's going on here. And then we have the oh-so-interesting part where it feels like Rachel's being sold to Jacob. Um, I know everybody really enjoys that part when we talk about how women have been treated in the history of mankind. Um, but I want to give a little bit of context. It might not feel exactly as the first impression gives. So at this time, it would have been very, very dangerous to go around as a woman alone. You would have needed an escort because anybody that saw you alone would have taken advantage of you in the worst sort of way. It's just an awful time period um, in humanity when that was the case. And so it was the job of the father or the brother, if the father had passed away, to make sure that all the women in the household were kept safe and cared for, and that they found them a spouse that was going to be a good fit, that would take care of them, and wasn't a scoundrel. There's actually a certain laws talking about if you marry a young woman and you are, act in a married way and they decide, yeah, I don't like her anymore, I'm going to leave her now, that they could, they could present you before the whole town and basically humiliate you because you've done her such a great travesty because she's probably not going to be able to get married again. So they, the job of the father and the brother was to make sure that any man wanting to marry her was of good, high character, quality individual. And so when we, we most often look, though, at the comparison of the money that was exchanged. And we think about this as, oh, it's like she's a slave. But I would like you to consider for a moment what the money was for. So if the husband were to leave her for whatever reason, that money was an insurance policy against him. That money was used to care for her for the rest of her life because it was going to be very difficult for her to ever be married again after that. So for one, it's that. In case you end up being a scoundrel and you're wrong, you are going to set aside funds to care for her still. So number one. Number two, it says something really important. I am willing to sacrifice for your daughter. I'm willing to give up what I have for her. She is that important to me that I'm willing to do that. And so this was what they proposed. This is how they measured that at this time. So it was more about the idea of protection and care rather than this idea of how much can I get for my kids. We have to remember, these are still people. These aren't just cruel characters in a made-up story. No, these are people. This is a father. This is a brother. They actually care about their family. Think about how you feel about your children or your siblings. You may not get along all the time, but you want the best for them. You love them. You want them to be happy. You want them to have good marriages. You want them to have good relationships. You don't look at them and go, what can I get out of you? I hope you don't. That's not who we are. We are Christ followers. We want the best for one another. That's who we are. And so when we look at this, we can't simply look at this through our modern day eyes and go, wow, this seems terrible. We have to look at it how they did. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is complete. It's been seven years. He's very excited and very impatient at this point. 
So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob and went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is it you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, is it, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Billah to his daughter Rachel to, her, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban another seven years. So much here. Um, so first of all, the deceiver is deceived. And how did that happen? How could that have possibly happened? We have to recall, it's been seven years. He should be able to tell the difference between Rachel and Leah at this point. I would most certainly hope. So what has happened? Big party has been thrown, very excited, lots of drinking, lots of drinking. <laughs> Proverbs 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. There's everything wrong with alcohol in excess. It impairs our ability to make good judgments. One drink is fine, many drinks is usually not. It's not good for you. We make bad choices when we get to a point of intoxication. And that applies to anything. It's not just alcohol. Any sort of substance that causes you to become intoxicated changes you. It's not good for you. And the Bible says, steer away from that. It's unwise. So he's now at this point where he's in a very impressionable state. And it's dark, and the only thing he has at this point that he could identify his wife to be is going to be sound. It's supposed to bring back the picture of what Jacob himself did to his father. Obviously not the same exact thing, but what happened was his father is basically blind. And so what he came in is he deceived his father when he couldn't see him, where his only faculty to identify him was sound. He, his father was in an impressionable state. He has a, his father has a really big weakness for good food, and so he brought in this delicious smelling stew, and his father just wanted it to be true. Jacob right now, it's been seven years, he wants this to be true. And then a, a terrible deception has been had here. It is done. It's complete. And so he's now learned a very difficult lesson, but out of Proverbs 11:18, we're told, the wicked earns deceptive wages. One who so righteousness gets a sure reward. What has gone around has come around now for Jacob. And he's in this really unpleasant spot now. He thought he never wanted to be in. But he doesn't argue with Laban after he says, hey, this is, this is how this happens in our country. Leah had to be married first. There's no further discussion presented here. He just agrees to it. And he can't get out of this situation now. They are married. It's done. If he had not been drunk, and if he had immediately recognized that this is Leah, they might have been able to have a discussion the night before. But we're past that now. We can't, we can't turn back time on this. It's already done. And so I considered Laban in all of this, and how, is there anything at all redeemable in what has just happened here? And I have to consider that he is a father, and if we look at the rest of his accounts, he really does care about his family and his kids, but he does it in a very selfish way. He doesn't want them ever to leave. He wants them always to be with him, and he wants them to have as much as they possibly can, 
but with him. He doesn't want them to go. He always wants more. And I do believe this is actually the custom they had. So consider for a moment. It's been seven years. Leah is still not married. She's probably not going to get any marriage proposals anytime soon. She doesn't hold a candle to her sister as a comparison. Now, any parent at this point, when this is the older sister, is starting to worry a little bit, are they ever going to have a spouse? We are not in the same day and age. At this time, the older you got, the less there was desire for marriage. It's a most difficult challenge Laban is finding himself in, that Leah might never have a husband. What happens when Laban passes away and she needs to be cared for? The worry is there. And so he saw an opportunity and he took it. And it pays off for Laban. But do the ends justify the means? No, it was still wicked. It was still deceptive. It still was not treating Jacob or Rachel or really honestly Leah very fairly here. Out of Colossians 4, 1, it says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. This is who we are. This is how we behave. We treat people fairly. We do what we say we'll do. We don't change the deal at the end because we're the ones that are in control. If any of us are employers, we treat our employees well. You give them their wages right away. You give them what you say you will give them. We don't treat people this way. But Laban's biggest issue, I could almost excuse what's happened here if it was just for a concern for Leah. If it was just, I need her to have a husband. This was deceptive. I'll also let you marry Rachel. Which he does, but he doesn't just let him marry Rachel. He says, if you give me another seven years of work, because I really like that part of this deal too. I've been enjoying the free labor and you have greatly increased our flocks. And so I'd like you to stick around. And I'd like my children to stick around. This works out well for everybody, right? His problem is a love for money, a love for possessions. Out of Luke 16, 14 through 15, it says, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him, being Jesus. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is abomination in the sight of God. We do not set possessions and money and power or anything else above the word of God. The ends do not justify the means. It's not who we are. Now, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren, and Leah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, this time I'll praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. And this is how our chapter ends. And so it's, it's interesting, this, just considering Leah for a moment and just the awful spot she's in. 
she wanted a husband. And I think anybody that wants a spouse, you have a certain idea of what that will be. You imagine a person that's going to unconditionally love you, and you're going to take care of each other, and you're going to have this beautiful relationship together. And it might not always be easy, but you'll work through it, and you'll have a good marriage. I'm hoping that most of us, if we think about marriage, that's what we're thinking towards. This is what I would really love to be true. And now she is in a marriage where she is unloved. And this is going on for years. We read this in a matter of a few sentences. It took a few seconds. But she just carried and gave birth to four children. At the absolute fastest, that's about four years' time that's going on there. So just at the absolute fastest, imagine being in a relationship with someone who you are married to, and there's just no love there, no consideration, and all of your spouse's attention is going towards somebody else for four years, and where you would be at that point. And this is where she is, and she's just so desperate to actually have a good relationship with her husband that she doesn't seem to have. And as a quick aside, having a child will not fix a broken marriage. That cannot be the choice of that. Maybe if we have a baby, it'll fix things. That is not a good idea. That's not a good way to bring a child into this world. It's not going to be good for the child. It's probably going to be more harmful to your relationship because now you've added generally more stress for a while as that baby comes into this world. If you want to fix your relationship with your spouse, you and your spouse have to work together. You have to be committed towards moving closer together as you move closer to Christ. Because the only way that we grow and that we develop and that we improve our relationships is to be more and more into the likeness of Christ and be able to die to ourselves and follow what he's told us. But bringing other people into the context, particularly a child, is not going to fix the broken relationship. Now, within all this, we see that God's hand is in everything, despite us. Something to consider, comparing again to the previous time that someone has gone up to Haran for a marriage. The servant is, he makes the whole long journey, same amount of time, but he's only there for a day. He accomplishes what he needs to, and he's back where he belongs. What was the difference? He's been here now, we're with our account here, 14 years. Why did one have success over the other? What did the servant do that Jacob didn't? Every step of the way. Every success. He honored God. He prayed to the Lord, Lord, let it be this way. I know that you have been there for my master, and I'm asking you to be there for me. Lord, let it be this way. And every time something happened, he fell on his face and he praised the Lord. Immediately, time and time again, he acknowledged God and he sought God's face. How many times have we seen Jacob do that? Big old goose egg. Not a once. He didn't arrive and go, I've made it safe on this four or 500 mile journey. Praise the Lord. No, he started interrogating the local herdsman. <laughs> what happened when he immediately met his future wife-to-be, praise the Lord. Nope, I'm going to flex some muscles now. <laughs> Every step of the way, he's acting within his own strength, and he's getting lessons in humility continuously over and over and over again. We might ask ourselves sometimes, why do things keep not going my way? Have you not acknowledged the Lord lately? 
Have you not gone to the Lord and said, Lord, what should I do? Have you not said, Lord, thank you for what you've already done? It's a reminder to us constantly through Scripture. And all of Paul's letters, he tells us, be thankful. Pray without ceasing. That's who we are. We're thankful for what God has done. And we keep seeking his face in all that we do. And he, but he will still work despite us. He will still make things happen despite what we're doing. Because one of the most important things here that we don't really consider, I didn't consider before this, was which daughter should he marry? Because Jacob's been led with his eyes. He came up, and there's two daughters here. And he said, that one's pretty. I want to marry her. Now, at the same time, she's also a shepherdess, so she's probably got a lot of skills. She knows how to work hard. She knows how to be dedicated. She's got a lot of things that he wants in a wife. But he didn't go before the Lord and say, which one of these women should I marry, God? Because let's consider Leah for a moment and her maidservant, Billah. They will both be a wife to Jacob before the end. Between the two of them are eight sons. That's eight of the tribes of Israel, eight out of 12. Leah alone will give birth to six of the sons. Half of the tribes of Israel come from Leah alone. They don't exist as they do without her. And of those six, within the first four, you have Levi and you have Judah. Levi is the priestly line. From Levi's line, you have Moses. Moses, the lawbringer, the one that lo the Lord spoke to face to face, whose face glowed when he came out of the tent, who gave them the five books of the law. Moses, you don't have without Leah. His brother Aaron, who becomes the leader of the priestly tribe that represented the people to God for thousands of years. You don't get him without Leah. And then you have Judah, the royal tribe. This is where we get King David, the one who taught us how to worship the Lord, how to be after God's heart, how to respond when we fail. This is David. He wrote almost all, not all, the majority of the Psalms. How do we worship God? How do we petition the Lord? How do we go before him? When David screwed up time and time again, because he did, we see David's example of immediately turning back to God, never blaming God for everything, and asking for forgiveness and to walk it out. He was an incredible example of being after God's heart. And then you get his son Solomon, who wrote two-thirds of our books of wisdom, inspired by the Lord. This is King Solomon. And eventually from this line, you have Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. These lineages don't exist without Leah. But did Jacob consider that? Nah, she's pretty. And then we have Leah. Poor Leah, who is unloved. The word you just, just hated, it's very often described as being unloved within our context. It was apparently common enough that there needed to be a few laws associated with this. One particularly, really having to do with the situation, is do not marry sisters and make them rivals of each other. That's a bad idea. Deuteronomy 12 says, don't show favoritism between your spouses or between their kids. That's a bad idea. We've seen time and time again favoritism going awry. We're going to see it again very quickly here. Favoritism going awry. Don't do that. How do we apply that in our current context, though? I don't really know anybody with multiple spouses. Nobody's that foolish. 
<laughs> that one sink in. That, took, that was a delayed response. <laughs> we don't do that anymore. It's just not our common practice. How do we apply this concept to our lives, though? Well, that one's actually easier to do. We just turn to Ephesians. Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ loved the church. This is how husbands are supposed to treat their wives. And what I love about a lot of these things is it's a non-conditional statement. There is no if, and there is no then. We like if-thens. If they behave this way, then I will behave that way. Nobody seems to have a problem with that. That's a, when I've read lots of books on marriage and counseling and taking care of these things, and a lot of people come to marriage counselors and they say, they're the problem. If they change, then it'll be okay. And if they change, then I'll start doing this. This is a non-conditional statement. It's saying, you will do this. You say, but them. I didn't talk about them. I've got something else for them. But you will do this, regardless of anything in your life, husbands. Regardless of whether you've had a bad day, whether they've had a bad day, whether they've been nice, whether they've been cruel, whether things have just been going right, you will still love your wives. That's how you should treat them. Every single day of your life, regardless of what happens. Husbands, love your wives. Non-conditional statement. It's a command. It's a must-do. This is who we are. I think these are one of the, some of the hardest things we deal with, because as we go through life, and the, this is the person who's closest to us, who we rub each other the most, often in very wrong ways, where we're just upset at each other because we know how to poke that button, and it felt good today because I was irritated, and uh. <laughs> That is not how we're told to behave. It says, love them. Wives have a different command they're given. That's also a non-conditional. They're told to respect their husbands, despite anything. This respect your husbands. This is how we apply it today. We don't treat each other unwell. We don't go through our marriages where there's no love. We say, well, we're just, we're just in this season. We'll work through it. We'll get through this time. Nope. There is not a this season for no love. Love is in every season. That's what we're commanded to do. It's part of who we are. It's the law of reaping and sowing. So when we look at this, how are we going to apply this? How are we going to identify who we are? How are we going to encourage others in who we are? Well, out of Proverbs 13, 15, it says, Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is their ruin. This is what we're seeing here. We're seeing people make bad decisions and bad things are happening. I don't think very many people are happy in this context, except maybe Laban. I don't think Leah is terribly happy about how things have turned out. I don't think Jacob's terribly happy about how things turned out. I really don't think Rachel is terribly happy about things, how things turned out either. They're going to be a big, unhappy family for a while because of some different decisions that have been made. People that have made choices where they thought, you know, the ends justified the means. Well, now we have to reap what we've sown. Proverbs 30, 7 through 9 says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. 
Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. We don't deceive one another. We're honest. We bring truth. Even when it's going to be at our expense because we have to be honest about what we've done. The relationship will always be better if we are honest with one another. We don't deceive. We don't lie. We're content with what we have. And we're told it's okay to desire to eat and to have clothing and to have shelter. That's okay. It's not a problem if you're desiring after those things. But we should be seeking God throughout all of it. And we should be content with it. We shouldn't constantly be desiring more, bigger, faster, stronger. We should be content with what we have. And we need to know that our provision comes from God. That's where the reliance needs to be. Is that when things get difficult, when they get tough, we're going to lean on the Lord evermore. We're not going to forget Him and start leaning on our own strength and our own plans and our own schemes. So finally... If our identity is in Christ, we have to know who we are. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. That's a descriptor of you. If you have called upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you believe that he died for your sins and you believe that he rose from the dead, then you need to believe that you are holy and beloved. It's who you are. Don't deny that. Don't keep dragging around the old self. Believe who God says you are. And put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, and meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Amen.